you're listening to the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, brought to you by NomadSkeptic.com. What's the digital nomad lifestyle all about? Is it really possible to live and work overseas, traveling from one exotic destination to the next, making money from nothing more than a laptop and an internet connection? Or is the DN concept a pipe dream, an illusion, an elaborate hoax? Trying to find and share answers to these questions and more, here's your host, JLB. Thank you, Deloria. Yes, JLB here for the first ever episode of the Nomad Skeptic Podcast. I'm very excited to be here to finally be recording this. And this is episode number one. So we've got a lot to talk about today. I've even got a little handy-dandy notepad and pen here. So here's what we're going to be talking about today on the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, episode one. We're talking about... The digital nomad concept. What is digital nomadism all about and why am I pursuing this path? We'll talk about that. Tim Ferriss and geo-arbitrage, this idea of living in cheap countries. What's the idea behind it? Does it really work? What have I experienced so far? We'll be talking about that. What I hope to achieve with this trip that I'm on. What I hope to achieve with this podcast and with the website, we'll talk a little bit about that, how you can be part of this if you're interested in any way in the digital nomad concept or the nomad skeptic concept in particular, things I got right before I left and in my first couple of months on the road and things I got wrong before I left and in my first couple of months on the road and we'll also play a few clips as well because this is going to be a bit of a variety show. It's going to be a way for me to use this website and this podcast as an outlet where I can maybe be a little bit, I don't want to say silly, but don't have to be quite as serious as some of the other work I do online. So we'll be talking about all of that and more. It should be a lot of fun, but today is day 79. Can you believe that? Day 79 since I jumped on a plane down there in Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne, Australia and headed to Phuket, and then I spent a month in Phuket, and after one month, I then flew to Kuala Lumpur, which is where I am right now, as I record this audio, and then in a couple of days, I'll fly to Kuching, which is on Borneo, the Malaysian part of Borneo. I'll spend a month there, and then it's off to maybe Vietnam, maybe back to Phuket, who knows? Who knows? But 79 days, can you believe that? Still hasn't really sunk in, this is all real. We'll talk about all of that and more, but I did promise you some clips, and long-term listeners, you better get used to a few clips, because I've got some favorites. And let's start off with a clip that I've probably seen about a hundred times, seen or heard about a hundred times. What you're about to hear was broadcast, supposedly live, on the day of September 11. Now, I know a lot of you who are listening to this, you have no interest in conspiracy theories or alternative theories or what I call skepticism in general, that's totally cool. Don't you worry. I don't plan to spend too much time in this podcast or in any of the episodes of this series talking about so-called conspiracy theories. But with that being said, there are a few events that have shaped the course of history as we know it, or at least that's how it seems. And if you travel through airport security, there's a good chance that you've been affected by the beefed-up security measures that have been with us ever since 
September 11. So without further ado, I want to bring in Mark Walsh, who's a freelancer for Fox. And apparently this guy witnessed... Dude, I, was, I, was, I live on the 43rd floor of a building, which is five blocks from the World Trade Center itself. I witnessed the entire thing from beginning to end. People talk about how it looked like a movie. I know when I came walking down here early this morning and saw both towers on fire and people on every street corner, it was, it was, it was like a movie, but you watched the planes hit the towers. I was watching with my roommate. It was approximately several minutes after the first plane had hit. I saw this plane come out of nowhere and just ream right into the side of the twin tower exploding through the other side and then i witnessed both towers collapse one first and then the second mostly due to structural failure because the fire was just too intense uh, obviously there were there were a lot of people inside the buildings at the time Dude, guys um, from the seventh precinct uh, the first precinct the fire department right here the seventh truck they, those guys are all right there at, at ground zero when those things went down and God bless. I know there's a lot of guys there that were around there, and hopefully they made it out. What was happening around you and the streets around you as this was all going down? Absolute pandemonium. From my viewpoint, up 43 floors, I could see people running like ants, just absolutely scurrying for their lives. Billows of smoke coming through the streets, just walking down the street, just pushing everybody back. And then several minutes after, it looked like it had just snowed over the entire area. Yeah, the, the, the debris, the soot was thick on the street. You, there's still a, a, a dusting of it out here. Uh, but but when, I, when I was standing here and, and the towers collapsed, we, we saw police officers running for their lives, screaming, get back, get back, get back. And I'll tell you, that's a wake-up call when you see cops running for their lives. And people, too, women's pushing baby carriages, that sort of thing. Well, you had the first tower first. That went, When that first went down, it just pushed everybody back. And it was a good 15 minutes before the second tower finally right. collapsed. Yeah. And it was just overwhelming. And by that point, it was just insane. How do you like that? On the day of September 11, you've got a Fox News dude speaking to a Fox News freelancer, Mark Walsh, who just happened to witness the whole thing from the 43rd floor of a building. He saw the entire thing from beginning to end. He saw this plane come out of nowhere and ream into the side of the Twin Towers, exploding through the other side. And then, of course, he witnessed both towers collapse, one first and then the second, mostly due to structural failure because the fires were just too intense. I love that clip. What I'll do is I'll make sure I link to all of the clips in the show notes for this episode and for all future episodes. The links will always be there if you go and check them out for yourself. So yes, this is episode number one of the Nomad Skeptic podcast. The first thing I've got on my little rundown here is digital nomadism, the concept. And from now on, I'll just refer to it as a DN, the digital nomad or nomadism concept. When did I first hear of the concept of digital nomad? Well, in those terms, I think it was 2016. I think it was 2016 when I first heard the concept put in those words. But the basic idea of it, I know for a fact I first heard in 2016 because I was working with a guy called Bobby and I've written about this for the first post at nomadskeptic.com. And I'll link to that, of course, in the show notes as well. But here's basically what happened. I was a university student in Brisbane, which is Australia's third largest city by population. And if you're not familiar with Australia, it's very easy to think that it's a rural or outback country that is underdeveloped or small or something like this. But the city areas are actually very developed. Brisbane, even though it's only the third largest city in Australia, is is a large city geographically and by population. Officially a couple of million people. And then in that broader area from, say, Brisbane through down to the Sunshine, to the Gold Coast rather, 
you've got millions of people officially and uh, it just sprawls and sprawls. Big, big city. Anyhow, I'd moved there in my early 20s, I guess, from Melbourne to kind of start life again in a way. And some of you who are familiar with the digital nomad concept, this will all make perfect sense to you. The idea that someone who's now 31 doing the DN thing has kind of done something similar in the past and maybe we'll come back to that. But the point of my story is I was in Brisbane studying at the University of Queensland, actually, a beautiful campus there in St. Lucia. And by the end of 2015, I decided it's time to go and get a job. I hadn't yet finished that particular degree. I had finished a a different one prior. But that particular degree I hadn't finished, but I just thought it was time to go and get a job. And so I applied to a bunch of different uh, openings that that I saw on Seek and uh, other places on the internet, I suppose. I think I actually might have got this job through Seek. I might have got this one through Seek. I can't really remember exactly, but had to go in for an interview. And I remember that on the morning of the interview, I was running late. I used to have a bad habit with running late. I still kind of do, but I've gotten a bit better as I've gotten older. You have to when you're trying to catch planes and this kind of thing, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I was running late for that interview, which I'd even bought like a new shaver for, and I really wanted to go and impress. And, and the job description certainly did seem impressive. It was a job that I thought would suit me well. I've got experience working in call centers and this kind of thing. And they'd advertised it as a customer service role. And the the benefit seems pretty good. And I was like, it's a job. I need a job. Let's just go and, and do our best and put our best foot forward. But I was running late on this particular morning. And I was this close to just go and stuff it. I'm not going to get there in time. Uh, it's not worth it. But fortunately, fortuitously, as you'll soon discover, I decided to head along anyway. And I was a few minutes late, but I didn't miss the interview. It was a group interview. There might have been maybe 12 people in the room at the time, 10 or 12, I want to say. And it actually wasn't too far from where I was living. This was in, well, I don't need to say the suburb in Brisbane, but fairly in a, in a suburb in Brisbane. And uh, so I actually walked there. I actually walked to the interview. So I probably was uh, half jogging to get there all dressed up and whatever. Anyway, the interview went pretty well. And back then, and and even to this day, I I usually can handle a crowd no problem if I get into the right uh, frame of mind. And everything went really well. But I didn't know if I'd get the job. In fact, I walked out of there thinking I probably wouldn't because going through the numbers they'd given us, it was a pretty competitive, com- pretty competitive kind of uh, interview process. And from my interview group, only two other people got through out of the 12 people in the room, myself and two other people. And one of those two people I'd actually chatted with after the interview and uh, she seemed confident that both of us would get in. She turned out that she was correct. So anyway, fast forward and to cut a very long story short, this was not a customer service role at all. This was an outbound sales role, but it was warm leads. So this is people who go to the website and they're comparing their the product that we were selling. They're comparing what they've already got the product or service that they've already got with what we can offer from our partners. And then some of them leave their phone numbers and then we call them. So they're warm leads. And what that means is that you can't afford to be ruining these leads. You're expected to make sales at a certain uh, percentage. And I think we were 22% was what was expected of you over the course of a period, whether that's a a week or a fortnight or whatever. But the point is it's not cold calling. So they're investing millions of dollars into their website, into their advertising to generate these warm leads. 
you as one of the customer service representatives, you're really a telemarketer, you're expected to make sales from those leads because those leads are worth money. But of course, I didn't know this when I got the job. The training was about two weeks and the first week was really just spent learning and studying and memorizing all the government regulations of that particular field. It was nothing to do with sales whatsoever. That didn't come until the second week and I think it was about this stage that we had all cottoned on to. Hold on. This isn't just a little bit of sales involved in customer service. This isn't, oh, you're going to help people and occasionally have to upsell. Quite literally, the job is outbound sales. But by this stage, you've already got the job. You've already gotten a taste of the the office environment. It was a good office environment. Things that some of you guys might take for granted, but for me, I'd never had before. Just things like a nice coffee machine that's free. Yeah, Something simple like that. It was a brand new office. So it was all new equipment and it was a beautiful spot. And there were just lots of things to like about it. They built a good team ethos, a good team environment. And um, and yeah, so even by the time I realized, hey, I'm a, I'm a freaking telemarketer, I was like, so what, man? What do you want to do? Go back to uni? Stuff it. Just let's let's do the job. And so after two weeks, my training group hit the floor and there was another couple of training groups behind us. And what this particular company was doing and in the blog and for this podcast, I'm going to refer to it as um, Mia K. That's what I'm calling the company. This is a small podcast. This will never get back to the company. I'm not saying anything bad about them. So even if it did get back to them, there's no problems. But I like to keep a separation between the, the real names and the names that I use uh, for my own reasons. I'm sure you can understand. So I'm calling these people Mia K. So Mia K, every March of every year, due to government regulations the way that that industry works march is the busy month and so what these guys do is they take in new cohorts of trainees and they were paying us good money i think i was on 25 26 an hour base rate during training drinking free coffee sitting around training wasn't hard and they're paying us i think fairly decent money decent money by my standards anyway just a base rate yeah so they were spending a fortune just to get us on the floor, just to get us on the phones trying to sell stuff. You know, the investment they put into all of us, I don't really think they would have made it back from most of us. But anyway, so fast forward a little while. So I was learning all about sales. Now, some of you guys have worked in sales and you know what I'm talking about. But those of you who haven't worked directly in sales, let me tell you that it doesn't matter how smart you think you are, or how good you think your people skills are, there are things that you're taught in sales that go completely against intuition, or at least they go against the average person's intuition. To give you just one example, suppose you're on a sales call and you've gone through the, the discovery, which is where you're finding out what this person wants, what they're likely to purchase. You've gone through the pitch, they like it, and they're up for the sale, but there's a small problem. One of the things that you learn through experience is you put the person on hold, you go and speak to your manager. Your manager says, just go back, just go over everything nice and calm, like there's no problem, just watch what happens, right? You jump back on the phone, yeah, that's not a problem at all, we can take care of that, blah, 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 bang, no problem. It it might sound so simple when I put it this way, you might be thinking, oh, what, you don't need to do sales to learn that. Most people, yes, you do. You need to go through the experience of, hey, there's this problem that is going to ruin the sale. We're going to lose the customer. We've just wasted 30, 40 minutes on the phone. No, take a break for 30 seconds. Come back. 
just play it totally cool. The problem disappears. What the buyer wants, what the person on the other end of the phone wants, is just reassurance that there's no problems. So you just jump on the phone nice and calm, say there's no problems. There might actually be a problem. Their credit card might not be working or there might be a problem with our sales system that is actually causing a glitch or there might be some kind of issue, but they don't need to know that. They're happy with the product. Jump on the phone, be calm, be cool. You'll get the sale and it works. That's just one example. I should have written down a better one, but the point I'm trying to make to you is working in that environment, you learn a different side to, I guess, customer relations. And I'm someone who's never purchased anything on the phone in my life. I've never in my life purchased anything on the phone. I didn't even know that people really did that. I figured there must be some people who do, but until I worked in that office, I didn't realize people from all walks of life, wealthy people, poor people, men, women, old, young, everything in between, people do buy things from people they've never met on the phone. And so anyway, to to fast forward a little bit, I learned a lot in my time in the sales role there at Meerkay. And if you can hear some background noise, by the way, where I'm currently staying, which I'll talk about more in a moment, there is a, a door in between my room and the next room. So there are thick walls, no sound gets through, but a lot of sound does get through the door. So if you can hear Seinfeld in the background, well, my neighbours like to listen to Seinfeld. I'm here in Kuala Lumpur. I think I made that clear at the start. Beautiful city. We'll talk about that in a moment. So anyway, I've already spent a few minutes too too many on talking about this sales position. The point is I spent five months there. I learned a heap. I made a lot of money in the March busy period. Most of the trainees, there might have been 80, I think, came through the training prior to the, the busy period. Out of the 80 come April, post busy period, out of that original 80, there might have still been 20 left. Might have been about a quarter could have been worse than that actually the attrition rate was huge both through people being fired and people quitting it's not a job that that everyone can handle especially not longer term but once the busy period had ended it was just not a not a good office environment to be in i think the company had completely missed their targets i would subsequently learn that several of the higher ups in that company were fired they'd actually been headhunted from a competitor and they were expected to deliver certain results. And I remember just before I left, one of the owners, one of the large stakeholders in the place was flying in from overseas and everyone was told to make sure they were well-dressed that day and blah, blah, blah. And then I subsequently learned after I'd quit that several higher-up people had been fired. I'm talking high-up in management had just been sacked. And uh, I might not have believed that story, but... Later on, because I quit and I I was just bumming around now. I had no job. I had a little bit of money in the bank. But I was thinking, well, what do I do with my life next? I don't really want to go back and, and finish that degree yet. I guess I have to go and get another job. Do I want to stay here in Brisbane? What am I doing? And this was all uh, 2016. Like I said, I started the job. Started 2016. I applied end of 2015. Got the job. Uh, started training. Started 2016. And then by the end of May or the start of June, I had quit that job. So I'm sitting there down at my local shopping center and by this stage I'd moved as well from the suburb I was into a, a suburb further out. And I saw a lady who looked familiar and sure enough, yeah, she was, if not, the, not, if not the CEO, like in terms of our office, that particular location, she was the head of that location. Might not have been CEO of the company, but certainly very high up. And she was just dressed in, she was, she was dressed worse than me. I'm like, is that? So I went and said hello, it was her. 
yeah, she'd been let go. And then, yeah, I subsequently learned that um, she wasn't the only one. Several of them were frog-marched out of there. Full-on stuff. And, and you could detect all of this. After the busy period, which was crazy fun, if you've never worked in an office, in a sales office during a, a busy period like that, I don't want to say you haven't lived, but it's an experience that... I mean, they were paying me to have an absolute blast. You jump... There were days when I was making 12, 14 sales, yeah? And every single sale was worth, say, $20 to me plus 0. Point something percent of the gross sales plus I was getting an hourly rate plus they were paying us overtime. It was just insane. They were, they were marching these um, trolleys of food and energy drinks and... Like, everyone's having a good time, you know? We've all struggled through January, February. Hard to make a sale. Come March, it was so much fun. Everyone's making sales. Everyone's having a good time. Most people staying back doing heaps of overtime. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. It really was. I knew at the time it was fun. But looking back, yeah, that was a terrific experience. But then, of course, come April, busy period's over. And it's not coming back for another year. And you go from the fun and the ease of sales and just making money, sitting there doing some quick maths on your little notepad going, hold on, today I've made more in commission than I was making a month ago in my daily rate, just from today's sales, like that kind of thing. That's awesome. But then you get to April. No, it's it's back to being a real struggle to make one or two sales a day. You know, the targets are revised and they give, I think for April, the targets were down to three sales a day. And even that was a stretch. No, most people weren't getting that. One or two sales, just geniuses. Yeah, they were still getting their targets, but no one else was. And like I said, people probably knew something was up and uh, later management was sacked and whatever. So that was one of the main reasons why I decided to quit. I'm like, well, I've made my money. I've had my fun. This place ain't any fun anymore. A lot of the people I worked with have quit. And uh, one or two other things happened as well. And I was like, that's it, I'm out of here. So I walked in, gave my resignation, and that was that. And funnily enough, the guy who I handed my resignation into, can't remember his role, he was a nice guy, but he did what he had to do. It's like they've already spent all this money training me up. They, they don't want you to quit, okay? If you've made it through a busy period and not been fired, you're probably okay at the job. They want to keep you. They're not going to let you quit without a fight. So he was objection handling me. In sales, objection handling is the customer has one problem before they're going to take up this offer of whatever you're pitching to them. Objection handling is assuaging, calming that particular problem. Oh, you're afraid that your credit card's going to bounce or oh, you're afraid that this product doesn't quite meet what you need or whatever their concern is. Objection handling is just getting rid of that particular problem, reminding them of all the good things about the product and getting the sale. Well, Guess what? Old mate was trying to objection handle me. I'm like, bro, I'm done with this place, man. I, I don't want to work here anymore. You don't want me here anymore. Trust me. I um, It's time for me to go. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm happy to work the two weeks notice that I have to give you. I'm happy to do that. But I'm also just as happy just to, to leave now and not have you guys paying me to sit here and being a, you know, a suboptimal employee. And I put all my cards on the table and he tried to objection handle me. But I was like, nah, bro, it's this, I'm not, I can have a day off and come back, but it's going to be the same problem. And it's kind of funny because I also saw him later on as well. He was another one of the ones who got fired. And it was just funny, not like, it's kind of amusing that the guy who, he didn't give a shit about me, okay? He doesn't know me, he doesn't care about me. But of course, he had to pretend he did to try and stop me from quitting. He And he did a very good job. He, he almost did make me 
reconsider, almost. But it was funny that a couple of weeks later, yeah, he had no job as well, and I bumped into him at a shopping center. And by this stage, I'd heard what had happened to him and to the others. And uh, yeah, anyway, memories, guys. We're going back more than three, well, it's May now, 2019, so we're going back three years. And I've spent a lot of time on all of this. So let me just put a line underneath this. I learned about sales through working at Mirkay, and it changed my perspective on a lot of things. And by the end of it, I had some sales experience, and I had a couple of grand in the bank, which is unusual for me. It was unusual for me at the time. I'd spend most of my 20s as a student, having no money. So it was cool to have a couple of grand in the bank. But something else very important had happened. I'd met a guy while I was working there at Mirkay called Bobby. And Bobby prior to working at Mirkay, had been in Southeast Asia. And he had a startup business that he was involved in, and it didn't work out. But while he was in Thailand, he had bumped into these guys who were effectively Tim Ferriss wannabes. Tim Ferriss, a guy who wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, these guys were trying to emulate his geo-arbitrage. So I've been talking now for 20 minutes, and I'm only just starting to get through the first part of this little notepad Let me try and condense a whole bunch of things down. 2015, I'm thinking, what do I do with my life? I decide to go and get a full-time job. I apply to a few places. I get a role that turns out to be outbound sales at a company that I'm calling Mia K. I learn a lot in the first few months of 2016 about sales and about how the world really works, the corporate world as well, and just a heap of stuff that one day I'll go into more detail about. And then I quit that job. So by the middle of 2016, I've got a couple of grand, some sales experience, and I've got this one contact, Bobby, who has piqued my interest with something that he's said at some point. And so we catch up for coffee, and he tells me all about what he saw in Thailand. Now, at the time, I hadn't been to Asia properly. I'd stopped in at Singapore for a few days back in 2010 on the way to London. If you fly from Australia to London, there's a good chance you'll end up going through Singapore. And that's what had happened with me, so I'd been there for a few days, but that's, that's a very tiny slice of Asia. I knew practically nothing about Asia. I certainly didn't realize that cities like Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City, Kuala Lumpur, where I am right now, these are highly developed cities with terrific internet access that are very cheap, and if you know how to get around certain visa things, can be fairly easy to, to hop between and kind of live, even if you're not a citizen. And to cut a very long story short, Bobby knew about all of this because prior to working at Mirkay, that's what he had been mixing with, those kind of people. So I'm sitting there with him. This is mid-2016 and a cafe, actually a pub, but we were just having coffees in Brisbane, near the Brisbane River. And he's explaining to me what these guys were doing. These guys who he had met were sitting around bars in Bangkok trying to come up with ideas for e-books to sell. Very easy to sell ebooks now, very easy to write them, produce them, self-publish and sell them and make money. But how are you going to make the money? The hard part is coming up with topics that people want to read. Well, that's what these guys were all about. They were all about trying to find topics that people would find interesting. Just enough people. You don't need millions. You don't even need thousands. Even just a couple hundred people, if you can sell a book for $5 to a couple hundred people, there's $1,000 in sales. And once you've uploaded the book, got the website configured, it's practically passive income. You don't have to do anything. That's what these guys were doing. And it sounded crazy to me at first, but Bobby explained, this is what these guys do. 
and they were coming up with topics like, let's write an ebook about how to raise koi fish. You know, koi fish, those big, like goldfish kind of fish. Those are the kind of things that these guys were coming up with. Let's write ebooks about how to raise koi fish. Yeah, let's write ebooks about how to purchase the best quality leather jacket from motorcycle. Right? If anybody ever Google's tips on buying motorcycle jacket, these guys wanted to be at the top of the Google search results, sell a book for five dollars or a course for five dollars or whatever. Bang! A couple hundred people do that Google phrase per year, convert a certain number of them to sales for your product. There's money. This money is chump change if you live in Los Angeles or if you live in New York or in Toronto, Sydney, Auckland. It's chump change. But if you're living in Bangkok, if you're living in Ho Chi Minh City, or even better, outside of the major cities of these countries, all of a sudden, a couple of grand in sales per year from an ebook, you can you can get that pretty far. You can take that pretty far. So to give, to give the context here, what I'm saying is I met a guy at Mirke in a sales role. This guy before he had worked at Mirke had been in Southeast Asia on his own like tech startup. That hadn't worked out, but while he was there, he met some people and their whole thing was just making lots and lots of chump change selling ebooks on topics they didn't even care about. Just as long as they could get the books written, uploaded, sell them, the crazier the niche topic, the better. And then it hit me, hold on, I know a guy who's doing that. You see, my hobby in 2014 and 2015 was podcasting and YouTubing. And I started a podcast in about September of 2014 with a couple of guys I'd met in Brisbane. And it was kind of like a politics, kind of like a conspiracy mixture, media analysis podcast, kind of like this, a whole mixture of things. And that was my hobby. And then from that, I got into YouTubing. And so by the middle of 2016, I had a YouTube channel with a couple thousand subscribers. And I'd covered a whole ton of topics, including, and just hear me out here, Flat Earth. I had interviewed about a dozen Flat Earthers because that was a huge thing at the time in 2015. So I had a weekly show, a live stream actually, where I was interviewing Flat Earthers. And whether you think Flat Earth is silly or you think it's worth time looking into or whatever, the point is these are the kind of people I was interviewing. And one of the guys I interviewed was living in Thailand selling ebooks cheap. I'd bought one of his ebooks for $10. And then it hit me, hold on, a book about Flat Earth. Because what I did was I, I purchased that guy's book on Flat Earth before the interview. I was trying to take my job, you know, it wasn't a job, but I was trying to take it seriously and it was a well-written book you can say what you want about flat earth i'm definitely here to defend it the flat earthers who remember me because they've all got bad memories the ones who remember me hate me they see me as the anti-flat earther and even that's not true i wasn't pro or anti-flat earth i just you know i've got some problems with what they say and but i took the time to read the book and i paid my ten dollars for a copy of that ebook so in other words i've got bobby sitting across from me saying yeah man in asia there are dudes who are looking for crazy topics to write about, niche topics, and that's how they make their money. And then it hit me, hold on, I know a guy who's got one of the nichest topics you could possibly think of, flat earth, and I know for a fact that guy's making money because he made $10 from me. And I know several other people who've paid for their copies of the book as well. Now, that particular guy who wrote the flat earth ebook and was living in Thailand, I'm not saying that he was one of these e-hustlers who was just looking for topics to write about. 
I suspect he really did believe in, in what he was saying. I suspect he still believes in it to this day. But the point is that it all hit me like a ton of bricks. Hold on. This sounds silly, writing books about koi fish or leather jackets for motorcyclists or whatever. Who the hell is going to buy and read these books? There are people who buy and read books about the flat earth, and I know that because I am one. And I know others who did as well. So, of course, you can make money writing about anything. This is a real thing. And then I realized this is what I need to do. I need to somehow find a way to convert my couple thousand YouTube uh, subscribers into some kind of monetized platform and then go to Asia and work on this full time. And this was mid-2016 that Bobby had put this idea into my head. And here we are now. It's May 2019. And this is what I'm doing. Like I said, this is now day 79 that I've been doing this. And my only source of revenue right now is the website that I developed from the YouTube audience. Funnily enough, my YouTube channel got deleted by YouTube a couple of months ago. So I had a couple of viral videos that have uh, now been you know, zapped from YouTube, which is a pain. And my main sales funnel, if you want to call it that, is gone. The YouTube was my primary method for uh, engaging with the audience and trying to convert them into paying subscribers of the website. That's all gone now. And in future episodes of the Nomad Skeptic podcast, I might go into more detail about that. But I'm still doing well enough. I'm still here in Asia, and I should be able to make this last for a few more months yet, even if uh, even if projections go bad, even if the bad projections come to pass probably still got a few months here doing this. So that's my story of how I came to be doing what I'm doing. I managed to cover a little bit about the digital nomad concept. This is basically it. Make your money online, live in a low cost of living country. The people who Bobby had met, the people inspired by Tim Ferriss, the people who I was effectively trying to emulate in a way, this idea of writing eBooks and making money. That's just one way to be a digital nomad. From what I can tell, very few people actually do that most people are teaching English or they're, um, they're working as freelance graphic designers or stuff like this. Most, most self-described digital nomads aren't digital. They're not nomads. And the ones who are generally are not selling ebooks. So I don't mean to suggest that, that is the digital nomad path. That's simply how I got into thinking about this and how I got into doing what I'm doing. But I still haven't even released an ebook myself. My website is is more uh, audio and video based. So that's the digital nomad concept and uh, Tim Ferriss and his concepts of geo-arbitrage, geo-arbitrage, earth. How do you describe arbitrage? You guys know what arbitrage is. You know, if you can buy something high uh, and sell it even higher, buy something low, sell it high, buy something in one market for one price, sell it at a higher price elsewhere, this is arbitrage. Well, what if you have to buy rent? What if you have to buy food? What if you have to buy basic supplies? In your country and in my country, for certain, Australia, that's all expensive. But you can get rent, food, everything you need in another part of the earth and lead a happy life. So that's geo-arbitrage. Don't have time today to talk too much about Tim Ferriss and his four-hour work week, except to say that I had no idea who this guy was in mid-2016. And I now do. I've read his book, and uh, yeah, I'll talk more about that another time. But how did I become the Nomad Skeptic? Well, Nomad Skeptic works on two levels, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment. But before I do, I want to play another clip. Let's break up the monotony of me speaking with a clip. This one is from Meet the Press, 
and it's Donald Rumsfeld. Do you remember how back when Osama bin Laden was still a boogeyman and we were being told that he has a cave network, an underground cave network full of high-tech gadgetry and intelligence procurement abilities? Remember all of this? Well, this particular clip might jog your memory. I'll be back on the other side of this. There was constant discussion about him hiding out in caves, and I think many times the American people have a perception that it's a little hole dug out of the side of a mountain. Oh, no. This is it. This is a fortress. Yes. A complex, multi-tiered, bedrooms and offices on the top, as you can see. Secret exits on the side and, the end, and on the bottom. Cut deep to avoid thermal detection. A ventilation system to allow people to breathe and to carry on. The entrance is large enough to drive trucks and even tanks. Even computer systems and telephone systems. It's a very sophisticated operation. Oh, you bet. This is serious business. And, and there's not one of those. There are many of those. This is a very sophisticated operation. Oh, you bet. And there's not one of those. There's many of those. Yeah, Donald Rumsfeld on uh, Meet the Press. I think it was Meet the Press. Meet the Press. How about that? I'll put a link to that in the info box. Below. Yeah, you have to understand, there are a bunch of people who know that this is all a joke. Okay, I don't know who exactly is in on it, but I can tell you right now that if you keep listening to the Nomad Skeptic podcast, whether you are into conspiracy theories or you're not, you will at least be in on the Osama Bin Laden joke, because that's what it is. And you better get used to that clip, because I'll be playing that every episode, I think, of the Nomad Skeptic podcast. So anyway, let's get back on with this episode. We're up to 35 minutes recording time, and I've only got through a few of these dot points. So I've explained how I got into the digital nomad concept, but why am I the nomad skeptic? Okay, for two reasons. One, I am now a nomad, and my revenue stream is about skepticism. I have a website where I talk about history, what we think we know about history, and what the evidence actually says, because the two things are completely different. It's full-on science what we think the experts know and what we assume they have evidence for versus what their own evidence actually says because their scientific papers are written in English. Anybody can read these if you're willing to put in the time and learn their jargon. You don't have to be intimidated by the scientists. And once you get past the intimidation, it's actually amazing. It's It's incredible just how little evidence they have for so much of what they say. So I take a sceptical approach to history, to science, and also to conspiracy theories. There's, there are some good conspiracy theories, like the idea that Osama bin Laden is a fake boogeyman. I like that one. But there's a whole lot of crap conspiracy theories as well. So I also like to take a sceptical approach to a lot of the, the popular conspiracy theories. And so, yeah, history, science, pop conspiracy. I take a sceptical approach to all of that, and I call myself the world's leading sceptic. And now that I'm a nomad, I am a nomad skeptic. But I'm also skeptical of the digital nomad culture, subculture, concept, lifestyle. I'm skeptical now having been studying it closely for a couple of years and using it as inspiration. 2017 and 2018, the amount of time and effort I was putting into my website and into my content creation, it was... it was. Looking back, man, I was killing myself. And I had to find a way to keep motivated. And I was using a lot of these YouTube digital nomads as my motivation. And I started to become a little bit suspicious that they were presenting a false pretense. They were were presenting a bit of a mirage, an illusion about what the lifestyle really entails. 
and I became skeptical of the whole thing. But by this stage, I was committed to to going overseas and using the website as my way to fund it. So I thought, well, I'll get to see. Can you really live in Thailand or in Malaysia or in Vietnam or Cambodia? Can you live in these places cheap? Can it be done? Or in Eastern Europe, okay? There are people saying that you can live in Bainsko, a ski city, a ski town in Bulgaria, for instance, for US $700 a month. Can that really be done? Or are these people selling a load of nonsense? Are they under underplaying how expensive it is? Are they overplaying how easy it is to get the visas and to find accommodation? Is this all a bit of a ruse? And I thought, well, there's only one way to find out, and that's to go and do it. So that's what I'm doing. And this is now, like I said, day 79. And my preliminary thoughts, my early thoughts are, yeah, I mean, I'm staying in an apartment right now. Yes, the the noise from the neighbors is a little bit frustrating at times, but I've got a pool. I'm right near the city. The food in this city is beautiful. It's cheap. You can eat all the food you want. It will cost you practically nothing. You can go to the movies for a couple of dollars. You can live a very cheap life here. And the apartment I'm in is about 470 US a month. It's less than 2,000 ringgit per month. So that's real. That's a real thing that I'm doing. I've proven that that part is real. You could live in this city for 1,000 US a month comfortably. Yes, you could. That's my, that's my preliminary analysis of Kuala Lumpur. But my plan is to go to a few different cities and ultimately end up at the Mecca, Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai is the mecca for digital nomads for various reasons. And so my plan is to reach there and and to meet more digital nomads while I'm doing this because so far I haven't met any self-described DNs. I met a couple of guys in Phuket. Whether they realized it or not, they were leading a very DN kind of lifestyle. But I want to go to the hub. I want to go to the co-working spaces and meet these people. What work are they doing? How much money are they really making? How long can you do this for before you lose your mind? Is it healthy for your mind, your body, your spirit to be away from home for so long and to keep uprooting yourself and going to different places every every couple of weeks or every couple of months or even every couple of years? Is this a long-term option? Is geo-arbitrage truly the way of the future or is this just a repackaged backpackers kind of thing? These are the kinds of questions I'm asking and I'm looking for answers for. And so that's the second meaning of nomad skeptic. So what I've managed to kind of do there is also talk about what I hope to achieve with this trip. I'm partly hoping to to look into the nomad, the digital nomad concept idea. Is it really the future? But I'm also just hoping to spend some time overseas. I haven't been overseas since 2010 and it's now 2019. So my first venture overseas was for about six months. It was on exchange when I was a university student. I never would have believed that it would take almost a decade to get overseas again. But a whole bunch of things in life happened and then, yeah, just put things off, put things off. Next thing you know, you're in your 30s and you haven't traveled. So I want to get a few months of travel under my belt, see a few countries, have some fun. That's part of of why I'm doing this. But I also want to see if I can build separate revenue streams, build online revenue streams that can have money coming in, even if it's not a lot, have some money coming in over the medium term. You know, it's so easy to fall into the trap of spending hours watching Netflix or playing hours of video game a day. Even if I do end up back in Australia or back in a Western country, 
I would like to think that whatever hobby I have, I can still be productive, produce things that people want, whether that's videos or podcasts or books or written articles or some form of entertainment, produce something that is useful to other people. And what better way to measure that value than through sales, through commerce, through business, rather than just fall into the trap of uh, watching and consuming. Hopefully I can be a producer, an entertainer, make things that people in the world want, even if it's a small audience. So my hope is to build separate revenue streams while I'm away. And I don't have to work now. I had a job before I left. I, had, I still wasn't making enough money from the website just to do that. I still had a job. So now that I don't have a, an office job I have to go to, I can uh, dedicate myself to this. So that's part of why I'm doing this as well. So what I hope to achieve with this site and with this podcast, well, I'm going to be documenting everything for you, for the readers, the listeners, the viewers. This is my first podcast. Today, I released my first YouTube video on the Nomad Skeptic platform. Yesterday, I published my first written piece, my first blog post. So I'll be writing, I'll be recording, I'll be releasing audio and video and documenting what I'm doing on this journey so that anybody who's interested can come along and hopefully get some good information and I'll be doing things as simple as here's a report here's how much I spent this month okay people have told you you can live here for x amount of dollars I'm here to say that they're they're telling the truth they're correct because here's how much I spent or I'm here to say that no they're bullshitting I looked all around and here's what I found here's what you can really expect to spend so you know financial reports or um, expenditure reports these kinds of things but also just speak about the, the psychological side or the philosophical side of, of what this is. We live in an amazing time where even the peasants, the lowly peasants, can fly all around the world. And you don't have to be that talented to make money online. This thing can be done. The digital nomad thing can be done, at least to some degree. And geo-arbitrage can be done. And this is possible. But is it good? Is it good for us as people? I'll be documenting my experiences for my own benefit and for yours and for posterity. And this website will hopefully be here for years and years and years and years to come, hopefully. So that's what I hope to achieve with the podcast, documenting my experiences. All right, on to the next one. How can you be part of this? How can you be part of this? I'll have a Discord server going. I might even have it ready by tomorrow. By the time you hear this, the Discord will be ready. Discord, I was very skeptical of it at first, but I've been using that for my main website now for probably a year, maybe more now. And it's terrific. I was too skeptical in a way. I was or too cynical perhaps. But uh, I've now gotten used to the idea that, yeah, this is how people communicate now. And it's very convenient. So anybody who aspires to the DN lifestyle or just is interested in, in what is going on with this seemingly growing subculture you can be part of the discord server and be part of the conversation there in the text channels or in the voice channels and just keep tabs on this website keep tabs on the youtube channel i'll get the podcast up on itunes and yeah you can be part of it merely as a consumer a listener a reader or as a contributor as well and my hope is to try to interview aspiring dns people who are currently doing the dn thing maybe ex-dns people who had their fun and got out or didn't have fun and got out, or people who tried it and failed and think that it is, it's all a pipe dream, it's not real, it's too expensive or or what have you, people who've left it all behind. 
I hope to interview and chat with as many people as I can. And by interview, some of the interviews might be somewhat formal. Some of the interviews might just be casual chats. But uh, let's get these things recorded and get them out to the listeners and let people make up their own minds. So if you're interested in any of that, feel free to contact me. I'll give my contact details at the end of the podcast. And you can be part of this as little or as much as you want. All right, so I've still got a few topics I want to talk about here, but I'm up to close to 45 minutes recording time, and I don't want these to go much longer than 45 or 50 minutes. So what I didn't get a chance to talk about today are the things that I got right before I left in the first couple of months, the things I got wrong before I left in the first couple of months, and I also didn't get to play a clip that I wanted to play from The Shining, which I am going to include because it's relevant I'm currently staying at a place called Dua Central in Brickfields, which is basically KL Central, which is basically Kuala Lumpur South. And like I said, I'm paying just under 2,000 ringgit a month for this place. And to cut a very long story short, this building has a fascinating history. It's a 33-story building. It's a twin building. There's an office, like a worker's office in one building. And then this part used to be a hotel, a Best Western Hotel. But a couple of years ago, Best Western hightailed out of KL. Why? I've heard different stories, some interesting stories, if they're true. But they're probably not. They're probably just hearsay or um, rumors or gossip or whatever. But Best Western are no longer here, but the building still is. So I went to a company called Ramada, and their insignia is still on the top of the building. But they don't run this place anymore either. Now it's run by a group who call themselves Dua Central. And so there are short-term travelers who come through these rooms. There are medium-term people like myself who are here for a month or two. And then there are apparently people who live in this building. They live in what used to be hotel rooms. And so at the bottom of this building, there's an empty lobby. There's a couple of security guards there at all times. You're safe. There's no issues with safety. But it's an empty lobby. And if you've seen the film The Shining you'll see why that is particularly interesting. And I had a bizarre experience here a couple of weekends ago that I'll go into more detail about in the future. But truly one of, you know those experiences you have that make you question what you think you know about life? Yeah, I had one of those a couple of weekends ago. And this film, The Shining, I will, whenever I see The Shining, I'll be thinking about Do Essential Suites. Whenever I think about Do Essential Suites, in the back of my mind will be The Shining. This clip we're about to watch is from the film The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor, go and check it out. This is a couple of minute clip. We'll be back on the other side of this. And this is the scene where Jack is talking to Grady in the men's room. They're having a discussion about who is really the caretaker. Uh, Miss Grady. Aren't you once the caretaker here? Why not, sir? I don't believe so. You, uh, married man, are you, Mr. Grady? Yes, sir. Hmm? I have a wife and, uh, two daughters, sir. Hmm? And, uh, where are they now? Oh, they're somewhere around. I'm not quite sure at the moment, sir. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. I recognize you. 
I saw your picture in the newspapers. You, uh, chopped your wife and daughter up into little bits. And, uh, and you blew your brains out. I don't have any recollection of that at all. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. But you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I've always been here. Powerful stuff. Yeah, I hope you like Stanley Kubrick because I'm going to be talking about him every now and then throughout these podcasts. Like I said at the start... Going to try and make him kind of like a variety podcast, focusing mainly on the DN thing, but also pop culture, films, whatever. Let's try and have some fun. So I'll come back and talk in a future episode about the things I got right, the things I got wrong, and so much more. I'll try and record maybe two of these a month. It might turn out that it becomes a weekly thing. It might become a monthly thing. I'm not too sure. In terms of interviewing people, I'll start sending out emails soon and it might become a podcast that is interview-centric. It might become a podcast that's just for me to do my my monologues in a room that's 28 degrees. I turned the air conditioner off so we wouldn't get the background noise, but you can probably hear I am struggling a little bit here. It is time to wrap this one up. So a huge thanks to all of the people who are supporting my primary website, which I'm not going to try and talk about too much on this podcast. I'll try and keep them... Sort of separate, but each and every one of you who are supporting JohnTheBond.com, huge thanks to you. And those of you who are into the DN thing, these podcasts should be a lot of fun. If you're really more into what we focus on at JohnTheBond.com, all the skepticism, don't worry, I'll get back into the habit of doing regular podcasts for that as well. But this is a good outlet for me, just to talk about the DN thing. And like I said, 79 days. That I can't believe that. 79 days already. That's... Uh, I, didn't even, I didn't know that. I... I thought to myself before I start recording, I have to go and check out days between, you know, Google days between, put the dates in the calculator. And it said 79 days. And I was like, holy shit, man, that that went so quick. I still remember that chat with Bobby at the uh, the Regatta Hotel, actually, right near the Brisbane River. I still remember all of this so well, but it was years ago. Time gets away from you. And time has gotten away from us, guys, so... JLB here in Kuala Lumpur in the Dua Central Suites. I've got a video about this place on the website, so make sure you check the show notes of the call. This is episode number one, day 79, and we're going to play out with our friend Deloria. Long story short here, I've always wanted to use the website Fiverr to pay some people to do some voiceover work for me, and it's kind of amusing. I've had a website going with podcasts now for several years, a website and podcast that I actually make money from. I've never spent a cent on voiceovers for that. This podcast, episode one of a podcast where there might only ever be one episode, who knows? I was more than happy to go and spend a little bit of money on a bunch of different voiceover artists 
And I gave them all the exact same script, and Deloria was the first one who did her recording and sent it back to me. And people like Deloria, they'll do this for $5 US, plus you've got to pay Fiverr, the company, $2, so 7 US is about 10 Australian, 11 Australian. So Deloria is the first of many. Give me your feedback about Deloria. Do you like her? Do you like her outros? You're about to hear it right now. And the music, if you're wondering, is Mutant Dancing by Jerry Goldsmith, which I did, of course, rip straight from Total Recall, the 1990 version with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hope you like Arnie films as well. There's going to be lots of Stanley Kubrick in this series, and there's going to be lots of Arnie, lots of 80s films as well, Paul Verhoeven. We're going to talk about all of these and play clips and that kind of thing to keep this podcast nice and fresh, unlike your blabbered, beleaguered host who's just making up words right now because he's struggling time for me to go jlb the nomad skeptic podcast episode one day 79 may 13 2019 coming to you from Dua central suites in kuala lumpur what a beautiful city who knows where i'll be for the next one until next time you guys take care of yourselves you've been listening to the nomad skeptic podcast Brought to you by NomadSkeptic.com. New articles, podcasts, and videos posted regularly at NomadSkeptic.com. Join the Nomad Skeptic Discord server and be part of the conversation. And wherever you are in the world, have an awesome day.